I'm Linda Holmes. Welcome to NPR's Book of the Day. What do you do in your spare time? Gardening? Maybe play a sport? We've got two books today from people who have had big jobs in government and politics, but who, in their spare time, if you can call it that, write novels. In a bit, we'll hear about former FBI director James Comey's new thriller. But first, voting rights activist and former Georgia state legislator Stacey Abrams talks to NPR's Michelle Martin about her newest novel, Rogue Justice, her second thriller about Supreme Court clerk Avery Keene. Abrams says the whole idea of writing about a Supreme Court clerk feels different than it did when she first created the character. And she says when she imagines fictional worlds, she's trying to think about the questions we're not asking. This message comes from NPR sponsor LiveRight, publishers of Left for Dead. Shipwreck, treachery, and survival at the edge of the world by Eric J. Dolan. The true story of five castaways abandoned on the Falkland Islands during the War of 1812. Available wherever books are sold. This message comes from NPR sponsor REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing. Visit your local REI Co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways to opt outside. Former Georgia State Representative Stacey Abrams has one of those resumes that makes you feel bad about yourself. World-class education, a distinguished career in the Georgia legislature, a national leader on voting rights, entrepreneur, professor, and she's a prolific author of both fiction and political strategy. Her most recent book, Her 15th, is another novel, and it's out today. It's her second thriller that features Supreme Court clerk, amateur sleuth, and all-around savior of democracy, Avery Keene. And Stacey Abrams is with us now to tell us more about it. Welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's always a delight. I think people may remember your first thriller, which features Avery Keene. It's a you know a rogue president involved in international intrigue, a Supreme Court justice who falls into a persistent vegetative state. It's my recollection that the first draft of this book, everybody passed on it because the president seemed too absurd and nobody cares about the Supreme Court. I take it it was different this time around. <laughs> yes. So I, I wrote it actually in 2010, so there was turmoil, but nothing quite as egregious as I portrayed in While Justice Sleeps. And so Rogue Justice picks up four months later and really looks at the consequences of confronting a president who's made some egregious mistakes, but where the public is divided about what that means. We follow her through the political fallout, but she is contacted by someone who recognizes that one part of our court system is imperiled. And so Avery has to figure out how broken our systems are by understanding just how fragile our infrastructure is in this nation. One of the reasons I was curious about this is that your last book dealt with things that we subsequently had to worry about, like big pharma, bioengineering. This one deals with surveillance and things like that. How do you think of these things? The reason I ask is that, you know, some people who who write about like science fiction, right? What they'll do is they'll extrapolate forward. They'll think, well, what would it be like if we had no water or something like that? So like, how do you come up with these things? I really like to understand where we are and where we go next. And as much as I love science fiction, I'm trying to think 10, 20, 30 years in the future, not 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 years in the future. But the conversations about our infrastructure matter to me. I actually at one point had an infrastructure consulting firm. And so I'd spent some time thinking about the physical infrastructure of the country. Uh, My younger sister is a federal judge and we were having lunch after she'd come back from a conference. And I was actually 
flipping through her conference program, and that gave me part of the idea for this book. But really, my ideas come from thinking about what we see in the world around us and then what could go slightly wrong, or more importantly, what questions aren't we asking about what's happening to us? So could you give us a heads up? What's keeping you up at night now? (laughs) Just so you know, we can get ready. I, I will say I begin a conversation about cybersecurity in this book, and it continues to be an issue that I want to explore a bit more. I think about AI, and yes, we have this sort of existential crisis conversation about AI, but I think there are more pedestrian issues for us to concern ourselves with. Assuming you can't stop it, let's think about what else could be done with it beyond not just the future it taking our jobs, but what does it mean for the nature of what work is? You know, to that end, you, the subjects you deal with in these books are serious, but there is kind of a fun tone to it. They're not so dire that you can't kind of enjoy it as a ride. And I was just wondering how you arrive at that kind of tone. It's how I exist. My work is hard. The conversations we have to have from Avery's grappling with her mother's her addiction to drugs and her mental illness and what that means. There are dark and hard things we face. And my life, the way I was raised, the way I think about the world, it's not just how do we grapple in the dark and how do we push through the dark, it's how do we bring the light. Your Washington-based books are animated by a concern about the fragility of, and I might even say corruption of, our democratic systems. So I do have to ask you about what you make of the recent reporting by ProPublica and other outlets regarding the financial ties between Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas and this Republican megadonor Harlan Crow. We should all be held to the highest ethical standard, particularly those who have been both privileged with and burdened with the responsibility for guarding our legal system. And irrespective of who it is, what we should all be demanding as Americans is the highest responsibility. My hope is that what is being revealed in these conversations also exposes a weakness in our structure. And when there are concerns about the ethics of those who we have to trust to mete out justice, then it is the obligation of those in power to satisfy those concerns. And to that end, though, the whole question of um, the fitness for office of people in these high positions, there are Democrats who do have concern about President Biden who are worried about whether he is up to the job, or at least if he's up to another four years. And I want to know if you share those concerns. I believe in the leadership of President Biden, and I look forward to four more years. Okay. So what's next for you? You've just accepted an endowed chair at Howard University. Congratulations on that. What's next for you? I have a third Avery Keene novel in the offing that I need to get to sometime this summer. But I am actually focused on both my entrepreneurial ventures. I have done a lot of work with small businesses. I am working with Rewiring America, making certain that consumers have access to the resources that are coming through the Inflation Reduction Act for electrifying our homes and helping address climate action. And I'm excited about the work I'm going to be doing at Howard University. Are you having any fun? I am. I'm having a great time. I get to wake up every morning and do things I believe in and things I love. And I am pleased by my ability 
to navigate all of the facets of who I am. And I think it can be a bit disconcerting to some, (laughs) but I'm never defined by one moment or one idea because we have a lot of work to do. And I'm grateful to have a chance to try to tackle it from a number of different perspectives. Or, or maybe just making the rest of us feel inadequate. <laughs> Could it... I'm trying to entertain. <laughs> Stacey Abrams' latest book, it's a novel, is Rogue Justice, and it is out today. Stacey Abrams, thanks so much for talking with us. Michelle, thank you so much. It's been a delight. This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries, Black Twitter, A People's History, from Onyx Collective and Hulu. Directed by Prentice Penny, executive producer of Insecure, Black Twitter, A People's History, tells the story of how black voices found a new home online and blossomed into a force for change while laying down some hilarious tweets along the way. From the memes to the movements, see how this powerful community shapes culture, society, and politics. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. James Comey made a lot of headlines as FBI director. His debut novel, Central Park West, is about a mob prosecution, a murder, a conspiracy. Some of the things, quite honestly, that you might expect a former FBI director to write about. As I read the new novel, Central Park West, there was a scene where I had to pause and chuckle. Now, this is a novel about a murder and about the mob, serious stuff. And the scene has to do with the notorious sniping and tension between the Manhattan DA and the U.S. Attorney's Office, which sit two blocks apart in New York City, and which, according to the author, do everything in their power to steal cases from each other. Now, what made me chuckle is who was writing this scene. James Comey, former director of the FBI, also former U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, and now crime novelist Jim Comey. Welcome. Thanks for having me. It's great to be with you. Why try your hand at fiction? Because an editor of nonfiction nudged me to, and at first I resisted. And the farther I got from the work, easier became to think about giving it a shot. And so I decided to try and found it addictive. And now I want this to be my job. Really? I I did see that you've already written the sequel to this, so this is not just a a fling for you. Yeah, it's not it's not a hobby for me. I I need to have a job and I found this harder than nonfiction, but a lot more fun. And it would be wonderful if I could do this until I'm old and foolish. So I've already written the sequel. All right. Well, let's talk about this one. And I'll start by asking you to introduce us to Nora, who is your protagonist. She is a young prosecutor. I gather she may have more than a little bit of your daughter in her. Yeah. Nora Carlton is a federal prosecutor in Manhattan working in the violent and organized crime unit. It was inspired by my oldest, who, when I was writing this, was the chief of the violent and organized crime unit in Manhattan and was prosecuting Jeffrey Epstein's co-conspirator Glenn Maxwell. Did you bounce any of your scenes off your daughter? Yes, I insisted she read the whole thing and give me loving but uh, direct and brutal (laughs) feedback, and she leapt at the chance. And she gave me all kinds of ideas, including she pointed out, Dad, you have my office on the wrong floor. Oh, boy. And so I moved her office from six to four and apologized. You know, when you write fiction, you're always trying to figure out what details are going to bring this character to life for my reader. And one that stuck with me about your character, Nora, is that she shelled out for Brooks Brothers shirts, and then she paid to clean and press them every week. 
And you write that the reason is when she wore them in court, she was representing the United States of America. And the first time she rose in court and said, you know, Nora Carlton for the United States, your honor, she got chills and they had never fully gone away. Would you elaborate on that feeling? Because I'm guessing that's something you must have experienced. Yeah, I was capturing something that I felt. I remember that feeling of standing up in a federal courtroom and saying that, and it was at once this sense that I'm doing something that had purpose and was really important that I do in the right way. And I know it seems corny, but it's real. I mean, the people who are doing this work find that having the United States as a client to be a burden and a tremendous joy, one that makes the hair stand up when you back of your neck when you first identify yourself with it. Another character to ask you about, Benny. Describe who he is, and I'm curious if he was inspired by anyone. Benny Dugan is a six foot five, 250 pound Brooklyn native who is an organized crime investigator who works closely with Nora. And I knew the greatest organized crime investigator ever, a guy named Kenny McCabe, who died way too early in 2006. And I've tried to capture the essence of Kenny in that character. The two of them have a back and forth where he calls her Ms. Smooth, a testament to her <laughs> yeah. being good on her feet, and she calls him Mr. Rough. I drew that from the regular routine that I had with Kenny McCabe. Towards the end of the book, you have Benny deliver something of a sermon about the mission. He says, our job is to lock up bad people to protect good people. I've never really thought of our job as finding truth. Our job is to live in gray. Is that Benny talking or Jim Comey? Well, both. I mean, he's trying to channel something that I learned through my career, that there's a difference between truth and justice. You can know something in your heart of hearts, but the justice system is built around the question of can you prove it? But it's something you learn when you deal with cases. Bad people sometimes get away, and we've set up the system that way so that we reduce the chances of of innocent people, of good people being unfairly convicted. Jim Comey, while I've got you, I'm going to throw you a question on a real-life case unfolding in a Manhattan courtroom to do with 34 felony counts of falsifying business records. These are charges to which Donald Trump has pleaded not guilty. With your former prosecutor's cap on, what do you make of how this has unfolded so far? I read the indictment and the accompanying statement of facts, and I don't know much more than that. I don't have a view on the merits because I don't know the facts, but mm -hmm. I think this is wonderful in the sense that the American people can see how the rule of law works, especially in the case of a person who's tried to take a flamethrower to the rule of law in America. You have history with Donald Trump. You were his FBI director. He fired you in 2017. Um, not yet four years into what was supposed to be a 10-year term as FBI director. Is that right? That's correct. Yep. I'll let people have that in their minds as I ask this next question. Can Trump get a fair trial in New York, in your view? Because he says he can't, that New York is politically biased against him. Oh, he can. And I, I think, at least the, the accounts that I've read of the civil trial involving E. Jean Carroll against Donald Trump show that he can. But a jury was selected in that case that included one person in particular, as I recall, who was a a regular follower of right-wing media on radio. And a lot of people who hadn't followed the news 
Yes, he can get a fair trial. Now, of course, he'll take I mean, a flame thrower to it. would argue that that E. Jean Carroll decision showed that the opposite is true since he was found liable, but go on. Yeah, I mean, he'll, he'll have set it up that any result would be unjust. And so you have to just push that noise to the side and look at the kind of jurors around a case like that, the kind of evidence they saw, and the, and, and the verdict that they returned in that civil case. They yeah. didn't find him liable for the top civil allegation, which was a forcible sexual assault, a rape and found him liable for the lesser charges. So how is that a runaway jury that can't give Donald Trump a fair trial? That's nonsense. I'm remembering um, you've been on the show before. You came and spoke to my colleague Elsa Chang about your last book, and you told her the best thing that could happen to Donald Trump would be for him to be ignored, to be standing on the the front lawn at Mar-a-Lago in his bathrobe, shouting at passing cars. Do you stand by that? Well, yeah, at that point, I didn't know that if he was in his bathrobe, he may have top secret sensitive compartment and information stuffed in the belt of his robe. And so his behavior has made it very difficult for that to be a reality. And I think it's important that the Justice Department and local prosecutors hold him accountable for what he's done. So I, I think Donald Trump has made it that we can't leave him on the front lawn in his bathrobe yelling at cars. James Comey. He is former director of the FBI and now crime novelist. His debut novel is Central Park West. Jim Comey, it was a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Mary Louise. Good to be with you. That's it for this week on NPR's Book of the Day. If you want more, you can sign up for our newsletter at npr.org slash newsletter slash books. I'm Linda Holmes. The podcast is produced by Isabella Gomez Sarmiento and edited by Megan Sullivan. Our founding editor is Petra Mayer. The show elements for this week were produced and edited by Hiba Ahmad, Shannon Rhodes, Lena Muhammad, Sarah Handel, Alexis Williams, Rina Advani, Amiko Tamagawa, Todd Munt, Taylor Haney, Jacob Conrad, Elena Burnett, and Courtney Dorning. Beth Donovan is our managing editor. Thanks for listening. This message comes from NPR sponsor Viore, a new perspective on performance apparel. Clothing designed with premium fabrics, built to move in, styled for life. For 20% off your first purchase, go to viore.com slash NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Rosetta Stone, an expert in language learning for 30 years. Right now, NPR listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership to 25 different languages for 50% off. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash NPR. What does it mean to be black in America? In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as black experiences, you'll hear, it means everything. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts.